Pentagon acquisition might not animate dinner party conversations, but it's a hugely important topic in military planning circles, and it generates reams of articles each year. That's why each year the Army backs a program known as the Major General Harry Green Awards for acquisition writing. Among the winners of the most recent round is a professor at Defense Acquisition University, Dave Reel, who joins me now. Mr. Reel, good to have you on. Great, Tom. Thank you. And we should point out that Major General Harry Green was involved in engineering and logistics and was killed in Afghanistan in 2014, one of the highest-ranking people, maybe the highest-ranking people, to die there overseas. So it has a good lineage, this writing contest. But let's begin with your article that won in this year's round of awards. I'll let you explain what you were writing about better than if I try to paraphrase it. Yeah, sure. So one of the things that we've seen recognized in recent years is the need to innovate quicker. And it's interesting because, you know, obviously there's many differences between the the Trump and the Biden administration, but one place where we find some solid agreement is on the threat that China poses, as well as the need to tap into the innovation that has always been America's strength. And we've seen that from both the executive branch and legislative branch perspective. If we look back at the Trump administration and their national security strategy, they make very clear that we need to approach acquisition differently so that we can harness those innovative technologies that are being developed outside our traditional defense industrial base. And if we go further, you know, just in 2018 when the new national defense strategy came out, Secretary of Defense Mattis came out and again made that point, that those rapid technology advancements that gave us our advantages in the past are being offset because those advantages are percolating now in the commercial realm. And he went on to say that uh, interstate strategic competition, specifically naming China and Russia, not terrorism, is now the primary concern of the U.S. national security. So that's what really drove me wanting to look a little bit deeper into this issue and try to develop some ways or think of some ways where we could stimulate that innovative mindset in the Department of Defense. Because for a number of years, there have been efforts like this. There is the Defense Innovation Unit, the DIUX, I think it's called, and there are all of these rapid acquisition experiments in the armed services, and there is increasing use of other transaction authorities to get prototypes done. So it sounds like you sense that there's still a missing ingredient to rapidly accessing some of the innovation going on out there between here and the West Coast. I agree, and we're really proud of that. And Department of Defense is some organizations like AppWorks and SoftWorks and as you mentioned, DIU. You know, and frankly, Congress has been doing their part as well. I mean, we can look back to the National Defense Authorization Act of 2016 and see innovations like authorities to expand our other transactional authority, which gives us the opportunity to reach out to small, non-traditional defense companies a little easier. Things like new acquisition pathways, uh, specifically one known as the middle tier of acquisition, which was designed to allow the DOD to better rapidly prototype and field new and proven technologies by taking away some of those traditional requirements that we had, like deliberate user requirement system known as JSIDs, or even the governing regulations on acquisitions, or or DOD 5000 series. And those are huge. And even as recently as last year in 2020, you know, we saw the National Defense Authorization Act put into law the DOD's use of commercial software methodologies, you know, that we often refer to as agile. So it's all these reasons that I think Ms. Lord, who was our USD 
acquisition sustainment lead chief until recently had it right when she said this is you know the most transformational reform of acquisition in decades you know i've been in this business for more than 30 years now and lived through a lot of acquisition reform but this is the first where the primary focus has been on schedule instead of cost sure we're speaking with dave real he's a professor at defense acquisition university and a winner in this year's major general harry green awards for acquisition writing sponsored by the army so is the essential problem here finding the innovation and adapting it to defense use, or is it having defense requirements and then finding innovative suppliers that can meet them, which are not exactly the same thing? Yeah, again, I think they're similar. I think that it's that connection that needs to be made. In what my article approaches and hopes to stimulate some thought on is how do we capitalize more on those innovations of small companies by instead of just allowing them to compete for defense contracts, but actually seeking them, recruiting them, rewarding them, and stimulating them to become part of these solutions that we're looking for. Because one of the challenges, I think, in doing so would be that they have to understand, well, you can't also sell it to China. And so the incentives and the reward system have to align in some way because to fulfill that entrepreneurial spirit, a lot of them start because eventually they want to get rich doing so. So how do you work that dynamic? Yeah, and that's a challenge, right? Obviously, not all of the technology that we need to be developed is applicable to commercial application. And also, as you said, there are security concerns. But we need to do our part as far as ensuring that we provide good financial and intelligent property incentives so that it allows us to get to where we need to be. And you've probably heard of this expression, uh, the speed of relevance, right? And that's what this article addresses, like how relevant is speed? And if you buy into the argument that we're going to maintain our technological superiority needed by our warfighters and the deterrence needed by diplomacy, frankly, we've got to capitalize on our commercial advances. The question becomes more of how we do that than if we do that. And in some ways, maybe the defense requirements can flow backstream or to the left, whatever you want to say, beyond the supplier base to academic research and the types of engineering programs that happen in the places that are excellent at engineering. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's where structurally China has an advantage. They have this military industry fusion law that says that any commercial advances are given to their military. And obviously we don't have that, nor am I advocating that. But it does provide an advantage. And you see that separation more in the U.S. than you see in China. If you look at the leading defense companies around the world, in the top 15, the U.S. has like the top four or five. And for the most part, the majority of the revenue generated for our big five, with the exception of Boeing, who has obviously a robust commercial aviation industry, is defense, like upwards of 95% for Lockheed Martin. And you just don't find that in China. They've got four in the top 15, and the most revenue generated by defense is 38%. So there's a bigger jump or separation, I should say, between the commercial and the defense realm here in the U.S. than there is in China. Interesting. And I guess these concepts you are teaching at DAU and alongside the traditional stuff using the FAR. Yeah, right. So one of the uh, other transactional authority or contracting professors will address that as well as in program management, the realm that I teach in. In our business, the acquisition business, we always talk about having two customers. 
the warfighter and the taxpayer. And that responsibility to the taxpayer, the, you know, we call it stewardship, drives a number of, I'll call them hoops, you know, that a company needs to jump through in order to do business with us. And we try to ensure that so that we ensure that what we do is fair and impartial and that we're getting the best bang for the buck. But we've got to recognize those challenges to those small innovative companies, we've established a number of incentives that allow them the better opportunity to compete, things like other transactional authority. But we've got to find ways of simply not providing the opportunity or allowing commercial companies to provide defense products. We've got to develop more creative ways to actively attract and encourage the world-leading technology companies to give us or provide that uh, war-winning products to help deter our competition. And there's some specific ways that we can do that and some specific ideas, and, and that's what I try to outline somewhat in the article. Dave Real is a professor at Defense Acquisition University and a winner of this year's Major General Harry Green Awards for Acquisition Writing. His article is entitled, How Relevant Relevant is speed, the global dynamics of the 21st century. Thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, my pleasure. We'll post this interview and a link to his paper at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I am your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Vice Admiral Cutler Dawson. Cutler has had an incredible career serving our country for 35 years in the Navy, where he attained the rank of Vice Admiral. During his service, he had numerous assignments afloat and ashore, including Commander, Second Fleet, Striking Fleet Atlantic, and in Washington at the Pentagon and on Capitol Hill, where he was the Navy's Chief of Legislative Affairs. Immediately following his retirement from active duty in 2004, he became the President and CEO of Navy Federal Credit Union, the world's largest credit union where he served for 14 years. Under his leadership, Navy Federal grew from 2 million to 8 million members. Phenomenal. Cutler, welcome and thanks for joining me. Thank you, Shane. You've had a fascinating career across both military and the private sector. Can you tell us a little bit more about your background and your professional journey? Well, I started out at the Naval Academy where I graduated in 1970. And then, as you mentioned, spent 35 years in the Navy. Um, with uh, six actual actual uh, afloat commands. Uh, the first one was when I was 27 years old. Uh, I didn't know enough to be scared of anything. And it was uh, probably one of the highlights of my career. Um, and then after I retired after 35 years, I went to uh, work at Navy Federal Credit Union as the CEO, where I spent my next 14 years. Um, I'm I'm currently retired and enjoying life, and um, it's been a great run for me. How would you describe your leadership style, and how's that developed over the years? My style has been quite consistent. Um, I believe, and I've learned this in the Navy, that you have to go to the deck plates uh, to see what is going on. And you have to learn what your people do and how they do it so you can help them to be better at it and more efficient and more productive. Um, it's um, something that you need to do all the time. Um, I remember I used to tell folks that um, you don't want to retreat to your cabin. And what I mean by that is um, the longer you're in a position, the less you think you have to get out and about. But that should be the opposite. You should get out and about more because people change, situations change, and you've got to figure out a way to get to them 
and find out what they're doing and where what you can do to help them. Uh, I we'll talk a little bit more about your book, but I read it um, from C to the C suite. Fantastic read. You talk about the deck plates in that um, as well. I would encourage everyone to get a copy of this and read some more detail about going to the deck plates. Cutler, who was the most impactful leader in your life and what quality did you admire about them? I had numerous while I was in the Navy, but uh, the quality that, that I enjoyed the most was the leaders that got to know me as an individual and that they cared about me. And I could tell that they cared about me. And they were not only my leaders, but they were my mentors. And um, I remember um, one particular one, Bill Schiffer, when I had my first assignment at the Pentagon, um, I would go in to see him with my problem of the day And I knew that he had numerous problems of his own, but he would stop and he would focus on me and he would make me feel like I was the most important person in his world. Um, And I I tried to do that um, throughout my career, but really it's about caring for your people. Cutler, in reading your book, there was a quote you used that you used to inspire those people that work for you. And it really got my attention and it was... It was, you are the captain of your own ship. I wonder if you can talk a little bit about what that means and how it was useful to you and the leaders you were developing. Uh, Absolutely. Um, What I mean by captain of your own ship, when you are the captain of a ship, sometimes you're in the middle of the ocean and you don't have anybody to turn to to make decisions. You don't have anybody to turn to ask, what should I do now? You have to be the captain of that ship. And I I translated that um, into, let's say, Navy Federals organization, where I would tell branch managers that I said, you are the captain of the ships of Navy Federal. You're the ones that are facing the the members or customers, as others call them, every day. And you have to make decisions without a lot of guidance, in some cases, and without a lot of time. So be the captain of your own ship. Step up, uh, make decisions. Uh, do what you think is right, and you never can go wrong. I think that is so important. And you have to give your people a little bit of latitude to take some risk as well, because there is risk for them in doing that and risk to your organization. That's right. And and I mentioned that I took command of my first ship uh, with five years in the Navy, and I was 27 years old. Well, my boss had 32 years in the Navy, and um, his, his guidance to me when I first met him was, Cutler, you do the right thing and I'll back you up all the way. What a wonderful way to, to spend an assignment with, uh, with backup and, and guidance like that. What, what great, great advice. Uh, it's clear leadership is a topic you're passionate about. You wrote the book we mentioned before, um, From C to C-Suite. Can you tell us a little bit about that project? Yes. When I was at Navy Federal, I would tell sea stories uh, as parables to get my point across. And um, folks would tell me, Cutler, we like your stories. It gives us a picture of what you're trying to tell us. Now, what else are they going to say? They work for me, but uh, uh, I took it as a compliment. And it was. And my wife encouraged me to write a book and I needed a co-author to help me. And I found a lady named Taylor Keelan, who was the perfect perfect co-author. She turned in my stories into wonderful chapters um, that I'm very proud of. Where can listeners find a copy? Well, you can get it on Amazon. 
and you can also uh, get it on the Naval Institute website. Uh, and I might add that um, any proceeds from the book, Navy Federal uses uh, to give to charity. Fantastic. Cutler, thank you very much. Really enjoyed your time and your lessons and in leadership and sharing with us your life story. And, and uh, I've learned a lot both from talking to you today and reading your book. And thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. And I, I, I would like to add one thing if I could, Shane. Um, during my assignments in Washington, D.C., I gained the utmost respect for the civilians that work here every day. They're hardworking, they're dedicated, and they, they have my eternal gratitude. Uh, I got to come and go from the Pentagon. They stayed every day and worked in Washington when I got to go out and um, enjoy being at sea. Perfect. Thank you. Yeah, we, WEPA serves civilian federal employees, but your comment is well taken because the interaction between the two is is continuous, it's nonstop, and it's critical. So uh, the career civil servants, as well as career military, uh, our country would not be where it is today without them. I totally agree. And, and I can tell you from the U.S. Navy standpoint, uh, we couldn't operate like we do without them being the backbone of what we do. Thank you very much for your time today, Cutler. And to everyone listening to Lessons in Leadership podcast, we'll see you next time. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus, and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.